Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. This is part two of a two-part episode as we build with Madeline Derby. To find part one, go to the Build with Clay episode page and find episode 14. Enjoy as we continue the discussion, jumping off with how athletes work with their fears. All right, so we've been talking a lot about fear, and I know mm-hmm. that performance anxiety and fear plays into injuries, but there's also fear that's outside of injuries. Mm-hmm. So could you share what's an example of fear that someone would have in sports that's outside of injury? Outside of injury. So to me, when we start talking about performance anxiety, I there's like two umbrella terms that all of our fears kind of fall under, and that's fear of failure and fear of success. I imagine just listening to your podcast that you're familiar with these terms. So fear of failure, 100%. But I would, I would love your definition and I would love your definition of fear of success because it's something I've heard of, but not super familiar with. Sure. So fear of failure, it's exactly what it sounds like. That's when you are afraid of messing up, making a mistake, um, not doing the thing correctly. Um, so you, you know, that's losing, the game, not running your fastest, anything that you can think of where it's like that was a performance misstep, fear of failure. Um, And then fear of success, even though these are different categories, because I guess how they're orientated is a little differently, there's actually a lot of overlap. So um, fear of failure, you can imagine like, oh, I'm afraid of messing up because I don't want to let my team down or something along those lines. Well, fear of success can be really similar where you have an ongoing fear of succeeding um, so much so that you might inadvertently self-sabotage. So fear of success is, um, anticipating also about how other people will react to you, but not because you messed up, but because of your triumph or, um, especially, uh, I, I see this a lot with people who experience fear of success. There's this anxiety or this pressure of surpassing, uh, your best performance or repeatedly having to do better than what you just did, right? Um, and if you, I, did you get to watch the Naomi Osaka documentary on Netflix at all? I haven't yet, it's on my list. I highly recommend, uh, it's phenomenal for so many reasons, but she actually kind of touches on this of like, okay, where do I go after this? I'm already the best, oh wow, now I have to keep this up or else all of a sudden I'm not. And it's like this idea that because you didn't perform the same as you did last time, all of a sudden it's invalidated your past successes. And I think Simone Biles actually came under the scrutiny a lot um, after her last Olympics here when she decided not to compete in a couple of different events. And a lot of people were like, oh, go no more. So in some ways, like, yeah, some people will uh, evaluate your performance as that, but it's more about how are you evaluating it? Like you're the athlete at the end of the day. 
like why would that make you not the goat all of a sudden but that's i would say that's kind of the idea behind the fear of success um like you'll see perfectionism in both fear of success and and people with fear of failure they might uh, go about them in different ways or they might cope through them in different ways um, but you'll also see procrastination in both and imposter syndrome i think is the big buzzword being thrown around but imposter syndrome is often talked more about for people who have fear of success meaning that oh if i don't keep doing the same level of performance they'll find out that i'm this fraud all along but you know that's really not true when you get down to it but until you believe that you know that's a whole nother story so Mads, if you had, I'll use Simone Biles as the example. If you had an athlete like Simone Biles, not Simone Biles herself, but you had someone like that dealing with that type of just fear in general, how, and, and they come to you and they're trying to work through this fear. How do you know when to support that fear and support them backing off, maybe backing off of, you know, competing for a little bit versus trying to help them push through that fear. That has to be a really difficult line. That is difficult. That's that's not just a question of best practices, but that's also like an ethical question that our field discusses often. Um, and it, again, it depends, right? Highly individualized. So when you're talking about a gymnast, um, and you're looking at the risk of their sport. And if they are, like we talked about earlier, if you're not going 100%, it can be dangerous. But in, in terms of this sport in particular, that can be very dangerous, right? If you don't land the trick right, or if you don't get it off right, however that might look. And like I said before, I'm a big believer in you champion the whole person, not just the athlete. Athletics typically has an end date for most people. Like, yes, you'll always be an athlete. Um, but you're not always participating in your sport. So when it does come to these high risk sports, I do think risk management has to be a conversation within them for sure. Um, and that things are being done safely for the person first, not just for the athlete or the team or points. Um, cause it's a lot bigger than that. And this one in particular is of interest to me too, um, because I am an extreme sport athlete. So, I think there is a perception that athletes who are in these more risky sports, uh, they must have no fear, uh, considering what they choose to repeatedly do, but that you, you and I both know like that couldn't be further from the truth. So when it comes to sports with high risk, all these fears, they're valid concerns. So you should definitely defer and listen to the athlete because this fear is a little bit different than fear of failing or perception managing. It's fear of, you know, if I mess up this move, it could be dangerous for myself or others around me. So I guess, yeah, sorry. So talking that through it a little bit. So <laughs> bringing it back to that self-awareness piece, like I said, when I approach mental skills, it's always in like those three steps. So first raising self-awareness. So I would want to explore the origins with that athlete in that sport and um, exploring the origins of that fear and where it's coming from acknowledging it and then kind of like a name it to tame it because i mean when you're afraid clay is that the only emotion you're experiencing no no so you're likely experiencing nervousness um or anxiety you're maybe overwhelmed 
Uh, some athletes can be upset and sad or angry, right? So there's other emotions going on. So it's important to kind of understand the whole process that's going into it. Um, and then, like I said before, I think like tune in to how it manifests. So we know psychophysiological impact fear has on our bodies. We talked about it before, like the muscle tightness, um, the hyper-focusing, the tentative performance, which can lead to a greater chance of injury. So you want to tune into not just the emotional process, but also the physical process that's going on in your body. Because especially since we're athletes, sometimes we're more tuned into our physical reactions and responses first than the mental process, if that makes sense at all. The next biggest thing, so once we have a good grasp of that, to borrow a quote from NASA, work the problem. So fear can be irrational, um, but it can also be a good sign that there's something we could be be paying attention to in our environment that could actually help us perform better. So fear isn't always this thing to be suppressed or avoided. I would say if there's something you're afraid of, lean into it to better understand it, because that could actually be something that ends up making you better in that situation. So by confronting the fear, we can go through, you know, stress inoculation training. Um, you know, that cope ahead I brought up about like the basketball player who maybe gets nervous at the free throw line. There's some ways to desensitize and rewire any um, unhelpful thinking that might lead to avoidance performance, over arousal or over aroused physiological states rather and negative or lack of preparation or avoidance preparation. And so when we go through that kind of training, instead our concentration gets locked in, our confidence tends to be retained, if not boosted a little bit more when we're facing challenging situations. So it's not that that fear goes away, but we become more capable to handle it. So I'm always going to defer to that athlete and make sure that they are acting in line with what they value. If they are deciding to push through something, but maybe it's not lining up with their goals and what they value, that might be a conversation to have with them. So Mads, that may that must be a starting point almost for you, like an initial assessment or something to try and unearth what their values are. Oh yeah, that's, that's all part of the self-awareness. Um, because a lot of times athletes will, you know, say I have this goal or that goal. And it's a good check-in to make sure that how they're acting then is actually moving them towards their goal. So you might have a goal of, you know, I want to be the best at this or I want to run this and this, but then you look at all your actions and it's like, okay, but you're not sprinting through the line at practice. You're not even touching the line. How's that moving you closer to this big physical goal you have then, right? So it's just those little check-ins just to make sure um, is definitely a big part of the process. Sure. Any other techniques or things that come to mind around fear and performance anxiety? A lot of these skills all overlap and the awareness piece is big. And once you have a good handle on that, then that's when you can start applying all the mental skills, coping strategies, whatever it is you'd like to call them. That helps you manage your arousal levels and your emotional regulation. Cause that's ultimately what it is when we talk about performance anxiety, um, are you familiar with uh, Yerkes Dotson, that inverted U of performance and arousal? No, please share. So just imagine an inverted U. Um, so it looks like a giant hill, if you will. And that's the idea that when we're performing optimally, we're kind of in the middle of that hill where it peaks right up at the top. So we're in the middle of our arousal, we're at the top of our performance, and then either, I'm on either side where it's these drop-offs 
that's when you're over aroused and your performance is low or you're under aroused and your performance is low. And when we're talking about performance anxiety, typically you're on that over aroused, you're over the hump, right? You're down to the other side where things are very high, but the performance is very low. And then the other side of that is maybe when you're feeling sluggish, unmotivated, not warmed up, you don't want to be there. Um, you might not have like love for your sport. That can be the other side of that hump where instead of being all freaked out, you're, you just, I think the common thing I often hear is, man, I'm just unmotivated. I'm burned out, right? It's the complete other side. So arousal is very low, but performance is still very low. So that's kind of the idea that we operate on when we're talking about performance anxiety. And of course, it is a lot more nuanced than that. It's not that everyone peaks at this perfect little middle ground. There are individual zones of optimal functioning. So there are some athletes that their hump where they would peak, it might be towards more the low side. They might be an athlete that thrives under low levels of arousal. And that can be because of sporting type and individual preference, but the same can be true. You know, I hear this a lot of um, athletes that need to have high levels of arousal, like maybe combat athletes. Their hump is going to be on the higher side of arousal where their performance maintains. But the idea is still at some point, you have a, a happy middle ground to work with. And on other side, there's a drop off. So again, it's individualized, right? It depends. But that's typically what we're talking about when we talk about performance anxiety, arousal regulation, and emotional control. You know, Mads, I'm laughing over here because you've said it depends a number of times. Mm-hmm. And you and you called it out, too, as kind of like oh, yeah. that's what, uh, <laughs> you know, it's something that you do. But I've been in sales for over a decade, and that is 100% what a seller says all the time. It depends. We say that to clients all the time. So I'm just kind of laughing. It's two completely different industries and, you know, still using those same two words. So the, uh, I'm curious, you, you mentioned earlier that you have more and more coaches that are starting to really start to leverage your expertise or expertise of your peers. Um, with this, you, I really like this upside down you and being in that ideal state an athlete's going to get the most out of, you know, a really deep dive with someone like you, um, over multiple sessions. But for a coach, if you're doing that, teach the teacher, what is like one thing that you would tell a coach, a technique to keep their team in the middle of that you? There's not actually a singular technique because from a coach's perspective, it's not just one person. It's focusing on the whole climate of the team that they're trying to help manage. So first, the idea is that we're training for these moments ahead of time so that we're not caught up in high pressure situations. Simulation training to prepare for big events is key. Uh, But to speak to your question directly, classic choking, which I think is what we're kind of getting at here, that rapid deterioration in performance during high pressure situations or important competitive situations, that often occurs in this narrow internal state. So that's specific to your inner thoughts. So if a coach is recognizing their team is buzzing, uh, playing out of sorts, you know, that would look like one mistake or compounding mistakes right after another. Uh, They seem overwhelmed. They're just not executing. Ideally, you're working this from a culture standpoint in two ways. Hopefully at the beginning of season, you, the coach, outlined clear goals and defined roles. So individually, if this is occurring, they can address, hey, Clay, this is your position. Next time we get the ball, I want you to focus on X, Y, and Z, like it's your only job out there. And this gives that player uh, actionable steps towards what's inside their control, and it cues them into the process. When athletes focus on the outcome, 
like, you know, scoring. Uh, maybe they're behind in points or they just need one more point to get ahead, whatever that might look like. They may not be cued into the steps it takes to actually achieve that. So you've broken it down for them and returned their focus to that process, which is where we find the success. Uh, this is what we mean by the difference between telling someone to focus and then actually help them focus in the moment. And if you've got an over-aroused team, they're not in their optimal zone of performing. Their focus may be all over the place or hyper-fixated on the wrong things. But like I said, that's, that's only one side of helping an entire team, using process-focused cues to execute play. When you take a step back and look at championship culture, it's both task cohesion, which is what we just touched on, and it's equally team cohesion, so how they get along and bond with one another. Are players getting frustrated and communicating poorly with one another out there? Or are they remaining resilient towards one another with like, ah, oh, unlucky man, second effort, let's go. You'll sometimes see teams deteriorate because individual team players start giving up on one another and feeding into the frenzy of the moment. Uh, so if you have, you know, a timeout at your disposal, that's a great time to use it and remind them that they're playing against the other team and not one another, and then clarify those roles and give them specific things to focus on towards the goal they're trying to achieve. Uh, so if you're high task, high support, you're going to be high performing. And then lastly, I would say leadership is top down. If you're asking players to remain composed, but your leadership, maybe yourself included, isn't doing that, it's going to be a hard sell. A way we learn and develop self-efficacy is observing others and modeling. So when you're in a leadership role, you're in a unique position to lead by example. Madge, you mentioned that you're an extreme athlete. I know that you have begun mountaineering, which... I want you to define for everyone here, but I first want to revert back to the initial discussion you and I had just on the phone one-on-one -on -one a couple of weeks ago. And you said that your mom always said that only boring people get bored. And that has stuck with me since our conversation. And so I'm envisioning this, this mantra being infused into you as a young child and now as an adult. And you're like, all right, well, what is my next challenge? And obviously it seems like your next challenge was mountaineering. So first, can you give a def definition of what mountaineering is and provide us a little bit about your journey so far in that space. Sure. I, I actually don't know if I know the definition for mountaineering, but I guess <laughs> the way I think of it is trekking, hiking, and or climbing <laughs> mountains. <laughs> there has to be a it sounds absurd definition. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, I think uh, I will say, um, especially because initially when I got into mountaineering, I was the only friend doing it. So of course they would ask similar questions like, oh, are you doing this the whole time? And it's, it's a lot more hiking and trekking than you would think. And absolutely, there's a technical side to it where you, you will be climbing at some point, but it's a lot more trekking and hiking than I think most people imagine. <laughs> sure. Well, what prompted you to enter this world of mountaineering? That was not something I ever anticipated, planned, or expected of myself. Uh, I always enjoyed hiking and I love being outdoors. And when I was in grad school, in the second year, the way our program is set up, it's very applied. So in your second year, you're pretty much just in practicum and maybe a class or two here and there. But in order to maintain any scholarship, you do have to hit <laughs> a certain minimum of credits. So in order for me to keep my teaching assistantship, um, and just some other scholarship funds, I had to have so many credits. And 
I couldn't take any more graduate classes. So I started looking at undergrad classes and I was like, oh my God, they have PE. I'm going to take all these PE classes. So I was in practicum and I was pretty much only on campus to work with my teams and then to go to yoga or to go to rock climbing. And that's kind of how it started was I started rock climbing because I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. And uh, what started as just casually learning to rock climb with a bunch of undergrads turned into me forming some really close relationships with a couple of the girls in the class who were very good climbers and then uh, deciding to take it for another semester where a, (laughs) it's funny to say this, but my climbing professor, I actually had a climbing professor, we were just talking and I told him how much I liked hiking and he was like, oh, well then you might like mountaineering. It's just like extreme hiking. And without a second thought, I was like, yeah, I might like that. And he sent me a bunch of information (laughs) on how to get into it. And I just applied to the International Wilderness Leadership School. And all of a sudden I was graduating and I was going to Nepal. And it happened really fast. (laughs) Like so much so that my parents were like, well, we knew you were going to take a little break right after grad school, but uh, mountaineering in Nepal? I'm like, yeah, why not? <laughs> like, let's see how it goes. It's apparently it's just extreme hiking. That sounds doable, right? So I actually knew. <laughs> well, there's a definition little. of mountaineering, by the way. Extreme hiking. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, that's probably the better definition for sure. But that's that's how I got into it was just like uh, definitely should have been a little bit more read up on it. But I know I love it. Uh, I'm kind of glad that I happened my way into it a bit. So you started in Nepal. What's been your journey since then? I Yeah, so I lived there for an entire season. How long does a season last? Three months. Um, so I started in Kathmandu with a mountaineering team, and we trekked all the way into uh, Sherpa, which is that regional part of the country where essentially all all the mountains are, I guess, is just a rough way to think about it. And once you were there is when you finally got to learn some climbing skills. So it was like, I think it took 25 days to actually hike to the first mountain that I would be climbing. And then, yeah, so that's kind of what the whole journey there looked like. So once you're climbing, you're in it. (laughs) You know, there's kind of no turning back. Like it's just mountain after mountain until uh, you're coming home. And that was that experience and I loved it. I kind of felt like I had this amazing experience that I just wanted to keep having again. So I stayed in touch with a couple friends that I made over there and I've continued to climb with them um, because they felt similarly, had the same passion for it, had similar goals. And so with them, I've also summited Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. I've done some stuff in the Southwest. And before the pandemic, we did have some plans to continue on. But, you know, just like we were talking about with our injured athletes, we definitely have to revisit our goals and and think about what we might want to climb uh, in the next year or two here because those plans are no more for sure. <laughs> what are your new, new goals? I personally would love to uh, look at climbing either Mount Blanc, Mount Cook, or Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier is local to the States, but Mount Blanc uh, is the... It's both in Italy and in France, so it would depend on what side you would like to try to get up it. And then Mount Cook is in New Zealand. I am still a little bit too far out, and I need to talk to my mountaineering team and see what's viable for them and what they have interest in climbing in. But those are kind of the three that I would really like to climb next. For those who want to start 
and get into mountaineering just like you did a few years ago, what would be your advice? Man, so many things. I guess so. I actually, for a little while, right when I got back, I used to um, go around the country and do little talks on women and mountaineering specifically, just because I like no different than any sport, like women representation, it's not equal. Um, so then there's not as much information out there as how to do this thing as a woman. And you might not think about that, but when it comes to mountaineering, there's a lot of little things behind that. So I think if in particular for your woman, I would look up something specific to that for sure. But then just in general, like just blank slate, doesn't matter who you are. It can be terrifying because you're at extreme altitudes. Uh, the risk is incredibly high and there's a lot of things outside your control in those environments. And so it's not about toughing it out. It's not about trying to put on a brave face. It's it is going to be about leaning on the team that you're there with and vocalizing as soon as something's coming up for you and working through it together. Um, Cause that's the whole team's goal is to get to the summit, um, right? Or I mean, that's kind of the goal, but it, it's more about the journey along the way and the process. And so the more you can communicate with your team and kind of go as one there, the more success everyone's gonna have at reaching that goal together. Yeah, I love the team aspect because you think about hiking and you think about it being individualized. But, you know, you watch any of these Netflix documentaries or Disney Plus documentaries or any of these documentaries that are out there on mountaineering. And it is a constant theme about a team and about how it takes so many people to be able to have a successful summit and that it is a lot about the journey. And of course, you want to summit and be able to tell your friends and your family and yourself that you summited. But, the experience of just being there for, I mean, in some cases for months, like you did, is got to be just such a fulfilling and rewarding and just nourishing thing. Um, during probably times when you feel free, when you have felt fear um, and all sorts of other emotions. And I would actually be curious, given your job and where you've studied and where your expertise is, I imagine that there are plenty of times with your team that you are their mental performance consultant and you are there to support them. <laughs> but I'm also sure that there are times when they are that for you. And because you have to be reminded of the things you tell people all the time. Oh, absolutely. I like, of course I, I have the skill and I do try to actively do things, but it, especially when you're a team, what's, what's the saying? Like so many more minds are greater than one. And when you, kind of take a step back and put numbers onto it. Like, okay, so this person's been climbing for three years. This person's been climbing for eight years. Okay, I've been climbing for two. So that's, you know, like at least 11 plus some. So with all these many years of experience, there has to be an answer in here somewhere. So whether that is actual like problem focused coping strategies to work through something or emotion focused where it's just more about regulating yourself, there's going to be nuggets of wisdom in there. Um, so it's so important to trust your team, rely on your team. And like I said, be vocal about what's going on as opposed to suppressing it, um, especially because what's dangerous for one person becomes dangerous for the rest of the team. So if you are trying to do something for the betterment of your team, then that does mean sometimes, you know, holding yourself accountable to these different things that can pop up. And certainly um, there was one, <laughs> I love telling the story. There was one day on 
Mount Kilimanjaro where I just hit that altitude where my body starts adjusting to it. And for those who have been at high altitude, they'll totally get it. But for those who are maybe like me before this experience, I was from Ohio, uh, which is like sea level, like don't really understand what altitude was. Um, At a certain point, your body starts just adapting to meet the demands of a lack of oxygen in your atmosphere. And so when that happens, your heart rate does naturally speed up to compensate. And so at a certain point in altitude, and it is different for everyone, but at a certain point, it will feel like from wake to sleep, like you are having a panic attack the whole time. And it's so uncomfortable and it's inevitable. And it's about how you appraise that. So again, like going into it, you have that knowledge. Okay, at some point, my heart rate's going to start picking up to make sure it can pump all this oxygen because there's a lack of oxygen. This is normal. This is expected. And it can still feel unsettling when it happens. So that happened to me on Mount Kilimanjaro. And it was right before we were doing this big climb on Barranco Wall, um, which you'll have to look up pictures. It's it's so stunning. Um, but it's a it's a pretty important climb to get through. And it was before we were heading off, and I was just like, hey guys, look, I just have to name it. Like my heart's doing the thing today, and I'm just feeling uh, a bit anxious, and I'm just labeling it. And so my team lead, of course, asked like hey, what do you think is going to help right now? I'm like, well, you know, I can logic this to death, but that doesn't seem to be working. I already tried to take a mini walk and tried to work on my breathing, but, you know, I'm still having these anxious thoughts and what ifs. So I actually think right now what's best for me is if I just pivot and like sharp left and find something to distract myself to get out of my body, actually. Like I think I'm too much in my body and I don't know who started it, uh, but one of my teammates started (laughs) singing Bohemian Rhapsody. And uh, by Queen. Oh, yes. And before I knew it, our whole tent was singing it. And I didn't realize how loud we were being because then the rest of the day, as we were climbing up Barranco Wall, when we got to the top, when we got to our camp that night, anytime we came upon a group, they'd be like, hey, Bohemian Rhapsody. And we'd be like, yeah. <laughs> and so that was actually, <laughs> that ended up like continuing to keep me out of my body like that entire day. Um, just people coming up to us and talking to us about the song and what other songs and singing with other groups, you know, so that was pretty powerful. And sometimes, um, you know, different coping skills, I think, get a bad rap. And it's better just to look at all your coping strategies as helpful or unhelpful instead of good or bad, because then that's when you can see what's going to be most useful for you to the situation instead of creating shame around using something that's technically avoidance, like distraction. That's not actually happening like helping the problem, but there was nothing I could do in that moment towards the underlying problem. So it did come down to regulating my own emotions, right? And so that distraction, that worked, that was a helpful coping mechanism. And so I think that's kind of like my nugget of wisdom to people is that look at your coping skills as helpful or unhelpful instead of good or bad. And then, you know, act in line with what you value, act towards your goals, what do you need in that moment? What's going to help you do that? Man, that's... So great, and what a great song choice! Such a such a great one. And it's I need you to I need you to imagine it too. At this altitude, everyone's out of breath, just normal talking, right? So imagine belting that song at altitude. (laughs) So it's like a very breathless, like (sighs) the whole time. All right, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go on a run or do a big row or something, and get like my heart rate super high, and then try and sing. Try to sing. I don't even have to visualize it. I can really try and be there. Yeah. Well, what's your go-to song? Like, what's a song that doesn't, you know, it never fails to make you smile? 
Oh gosh, I mean, there's a lot of them, but the the honestly the story that I thought of this is not going to perfectly answer your question, but the story I thought of was I went and hiked part of the Grand Canyon uh, about eight years ago with two of my best friends, and one of my friends who is actually uh, has been on the pod, um, he is a high school history teacher, has crazy passion for history, especially Roman history. So it's sweltering hot is just like we're in late May in Arizona, the sun's beating on us. We're like five hours into our hike. We're hiking up, you know, up the Canyon and we're just like, we need distraction. And we're just like, dude, can you just tell us a story about history? And so for the next hour, he just starts telling us stories about Roman history and, you know, stuff that he's super passionate about. And, you know, that, I mean, that hour flew by because I was learning, Mm -hmm. I was, you know, not concentrating on anything else other than what he was saying. And it, um, so it just reminded me so much of your story. Now you were going through way more than I was, but it was, you know, still same concept, trying to get out of your body, trying to, you know, think of something else. And, um, so that, that's what made me think of it, but, uh, like songs that make me really happy anytime they come on. The first one that came to mind was the man by Aloe Black. I, I love that song all the above by Marino, I think, but there's just a couple like upbeat songs that, you know, have, I have fond memories of like people or experiences that where that song was playing or, you know, just get me kind of excited and always bring a smile to my face. Yeah. It's like the songs that without thinking about it, you just know every word too. Yeah. Oh, also this comes to mind because, it happened today. I was in, I gave my sons a ride back from school and one of them asked for me to play the rock star song. I was like, the rock star song. It's like, Oh, I know what it is. And so I put on smash mouth all star <laughs> and, and I hadn't listened to that song in a decade. And outside of like the one time that they had, a- they had asked for it months ago. And then he just happened to remember it. And I knew every word to that song because I had sung it a thousand times before, but it's just so crazy how your brain works. So that one also brings a smile to my face. Oh, that's a watch. Your kids are going to know every word to that just oh, by coincidence too. that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. On your forehead. Yeah. So, um, well, that's really cool. Love the mountaineering aspect of this. I think that's so cool. And that you've been able to do this as I know you're a very competitive person. You got taken away from, you know, field hockey and, and what you love there. And you're just still finding com- ways to fuel your competitive spirit, be within a team, set goals for yourself. And mountaineering sounds like a just really cool thing. So just looking forward to hearing more about this and hopefully having you on the pod in at a future date and hearing about those experiences of those three mountains that you have goals for and probably many more. Um, so maybe we'll see you on a documentary one day. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know if I would make great content. It would pretty much be like uh, this chick who just kind of happened into this and <laughs> they're not sure why she's here, but she's doing her best. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, um, yeah. oh, hey, you have dropped a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom and been vulnerable in everything. And I'm just so grateful for it, Mad. So to, to, I have a couple things I want to close out with on this. So I asked you a question very early on about would you rather give up reading or TV for a year? And pretty quickly you said, I would give up TV. I, I don't want to give up reading. So what books or book do you gift most often? I don't know if this is just stuck in my head right now because you started speaking about your friend um, who studied history, but the Sapiens book, it's it's pretty massive. By Yuval? 
Yep. It's so good. I do love that book. Um, and that was just so eye-opening, I think, in so many ways, too. Uh, I So I would recommend that. I would. I have gifted that to quite a few people, <laughs> too, <laughs> if we're actually talking about it. Um, I also uh, have shared with people the book Pure Land, um, which is about a journalist who covers a true crime case. And this is a, this is all real. This is um, nonfiction. And she covers a true crime case and she follows the path of the person who committed the crime, the victim, and what it's bringing up for her in that journey. Um, and it's very fascinating. It deals with generational trauma. It deals heavily with, you know, speaking of the Grand Canyon, it, it actually deals heavily with um, the U.S. government and the forceful removal of Native, Native Americans and where they ended up, you know, just kind of forcing them to move to and how that has impacted society. That's a really heavy and intricate book, but I, I would heavily, I heavily recommend that book too. And then um, I think one of my favorite books that's been my favorite for a long time now, and I always come back to it, is Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. And I read it like way back when in high school, but it was so different. It was such a visual experience as much as it was a literary one. Have you read that book by chance? I have not. Oh man. He actually like makes art of his book. I I don't know how else to describe it. It will be unlike any other book you've ever read. Um, But that book, oh gosh, I think I like heavy books because that book is also kind of... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not a light read, but yeah, I think those are the three that I've gifted or recommended most recently and then maybe just a fun one so because I swear like I take myself seriously but I'm not this overly serious person I also like reading the um Expanse series it's a sci-fi novel it's uh they made it into a series on Amazon Prime I don't know if you've seen that or heard of it I haven't but I do some of my favorite books are sci-fi like The Martian is one of my favorite books I've ever read and um, Ender's Game, Ready Player One, all those mm-hmm. types of books. So uh, it sounds like that's a series I need to check out. All right, Mads, where can listeners learn more and where can they find you? My business is called Inside Rival and you can go to www.insiderival.com um, and find out a little bit more of myself and what I do. Um, and my contact information is on the website there. And yeah, and you can learn a little bit more that way. And then I'm also on Instagram. And I believe that's just at Inside Rival, all lowercase, all one word, nothing fancy in it, just at Inside Rival. And I imagine the Inside Rival is you're your own rival inside of you. You nailed it. (laughs) It it didn't take much education to figure it out, which is why it's probably such a good name, but I really like the name. I've explored a little bit of your website. You've got blogs, you've got stuff out there. Um, I know that you have stuff there for your clients as well. That's probably a little bit more deeper um, and a lot more wisdom sharing there. But um, yeah, go check her out. Mads, thank you so much again for having this conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. Feel like could have talked to you for a whole lot longer, but we'll, uh, we'll save that for the next podcast. But thank you again for, again, being vulnerable, sharing your wisdom And I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks. And thanks for having me on. And thank you for letting me completely nerd out. There's definitely a moment or two in that where I'm like, I think I'm blacking out. I'm just talking at this point. I love this subject so much. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we've built with Mads today. Mads, thanks for being on. Thank you. 
Hey listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build with Clay on Instagram at Build with Clay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.